The Bob Murphy Show, episode 219. Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. Today I'm going to be talking with David Gornowski, who is the host of the radio program, A Neighbor's Choice. Let me read the blurb of this just so you get an idea of where he's coming from. Hosted by writer and speaker David Gornowski, A Neighbor's Choice radio show examines the role of violence and religion in society, from victims of state violence against nonviolent behaviors to public figures and contrarian voices, the conversations that unfold create an illuminating and sometimes strange journey for listeners. And I think we have reproduced that effect in this conversation. We're going to start out by having David tell the story. His YouTube channel was recently nuked. And so he'll explain what happened there. And then we will turn to having David summarize the work of Rene Girard and his scapegoating theory or framework and then use that framework or lens to analyze current events. Just to let you know, David does most of the talking in this episode, but I was fine with that. I, I was just sitting back and <laughs> largely listening to him. When I see other interviews sometimes and the guest is going on a long soliloquy, I'm perfectly happy when the person's interesting and David certainly is interesting in this one. So that's why I'm just occasionally asking a question to sort of steer him onto the things that he's talking about. But really interesting stuff. I hope you guys like it as much as I did. Here is my conversation with David Gornowski. Well, David, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Hey, how you doing? It's great to be with you again. Glad to have you back. I guess you're, I should say welcome back to the Bob Murphy Show. You've been on before. So why don't we just jump right into the fun stuff? You had an issue with YouTube recently. So maybe just briefly explain, you know, what the history was and, you know, how what your channel was and then what happened and, and what the ostensible reasons were. Yeah, my channel... Um had my daily live streams of my radio show, which is on FM and AM. It's called A Neighbor's Choice and uh, has call-ins and we have guests and so forth. Um, it also had interviews that I did that were online only, you know, interviews like with yourself before I started the radio show. I would just do podcasts similar to how you do it. Um, and those were on there, Ron Paul, Peter Schiff, Jordan Peterson, all kinds of great guests. And theologians, you know, David Bentley Hart, N.T. Wright. We had a big, I mean, I had scientists on there talking about uh, breakthrough paradigm shifting uh, studies they'd published in Nature that would change the game for cancer with with very inexpensive uh, antibiotics being able to prevent cancer metastasis. So we just had such a, a variety show kind of thing. Maybe I just don't like talking about one topic. I like, mm -hmm. and I think you're like that too. You talk about physics and economics and government and oh, theology yeah. Oh, yeah. too. So yeah, had a great library on there and uh, strike one, I think it was for, because I played a clip of uh, when Trump was in the Rose Garden saying, I want you all to go home. You know, the January mm -hmm. 6th mm -hmm. thing is like, go home, no violence, go home, it's over, it was rigged. 
And they had censored that video from being played on any platform at the time because they said that his video was crying for more violence. And their, and their argument in the media and YouTube was that because he kept saying it was rigged, it was still inflaming the violence that was happening on January 6th. But if when I played the audio clip on my radio show, it's he's still sticking to his guns that he feels that it was rigged, but he did clearly say, don't violence, go home, it's over, go home, you know? So I wanted to play that for my audience, and they got a strike for that. Strike two was for something, I think, probably about ivermectin or something like that. You might have to censor that word after I just said this if you're on YouTube. And then strike three, I think, had something to do, they didn't tell you what it was. I think it had something to do with a caller who had called in because the day that the episode they struck, a caller had called in and uh, she had made passionate arguments about what she think uh, what she thinks of the political response to COVID in a worldwide level. And um, I didn't even say I agreed with her or not, but that I think was maybe had been, I couldn't, it could be something I said, you know, but uh, they don't tell you. They just mm -hmm. say strike three and all your content's deleted. So when that happened, I said, man, this feels like a digital 21st century version of, um, you know, when you're like a journalist in the Weimar Republic, and you're writing about these brown shirt fascists, and they find your library of magazines and essays, and they burn it down. It's like, we don't want you talking. We don't mm -hmm. like what you're talking about. So we're going to burn your library down. Now, luckily, we have a few other libraries of our content on Rumble and BitChute and hard drives and so forth. But just to feel that, and that sounds melodramatic maybe, but it's not, because it, it's the same thing. It's trying to extinguish ideas. And it's not just the COVID stuff. That's just the latest excuse. They do they go after election things. And I don't even have a strong opinion one way or other about what happened at that election. I just present ideas, let people think, but they don't want you to think. They want you to conform uh, because we've come into a kind of mimetic frenzy in which people are wound up into a narrative that they will do anything to protect. So just to be clear on the logistics of it, once you got that third strike, it didn't say, hey, you got to take this particular video down. Just boom. Not only was that thing down, but all your previous, your whole archives. Yeah, like over decades I've had that channel. So, yeah, I mean, it's all gone. And, uh, they, yeah, they don't give you a chance to delete that video and, uh, and, and repent or anything. You know, they do say you can complain. And, I, and, and my complaint was basically, like, look, if you guys don't want me to live stream anymore so that you don't have to worry about anything I say in the future, that's fine. But I've got some really great interviews on there with scientists and psychologists and stuff that is really good information for the public interest. Wouldn't you want to keep that up? And I would just agree not to live stream anymore. Mm -hmm. But they wouldn't, you know, just a little cookie cutter, you know, nope, sorry, you're bye-bye. So that's fine. You know, that's what they want to do. I, uh, you know, I, I don't know, again, not to make it too melodramatic, but I was thinking about it when that happened. Most of my audience is on podcast and radio. So mm -hmm. I intentionally did not spend a lot of time, spend a lot of time cultivating doing YouTube-friendly tricks to get a lot of YouTube clicks and downloads because I always felt like that's probably a shaky ground to build an audience on for a media platform in this time. Um, but when it happened, that was the best part about YouTube was the live stream comments that people would give during my radio shows, you mm -hmm. know? Uh, there was a lot of fun, vibrant discussions there that I was missing once that was gone. And then when it happened, I said, okay, we're still live streaming on Rumble and stuff. But I thought, what do I do now, God? And then I remember <laughs> it's one of those little things that evangelicals, you know, have. It's like, okay, you turn on the radio <laughs> to the Christian radio station and whatever. And then all of a sudden, it's like cookie cutter. It's like a fortune cookie Christianity. You turn mm -hmm. on the radio. What is the guy, what's guy going to tell me now? And it was exactly what I needed to hear. It was a guy saying, um, 
that the place outside the camp in Israel was where sacrifices and everything were, were done. And that's the place where uh, that was the outcast place. That was the place of of of, of the misfit, of the of the of the downtrodden, and that's where Jesus was murdered outside the camp, not in the holy of holies, but outside the camp of his place, of his people. And he was saying, to be truly like Christ means you have to go outside the camp. You have to go to the forgotten people around you, and the misfits and the downtrodden, and live among them. And I was like. Well, I mean, look, it's just YouTube, but still, I mean, I want to be a media personality for my career. So I'm mm. outside the camp of the biggest video platform to develop a young 32-year-old guy's career. Okay. Well, this is where I guess you have to be, maybe, if you really want to do media in a way that imitates Christ, not just talking about it, but actually imitating the spirit of Christ such that it may get you banned. And thank God it's just a YouTube ban. One day it could be can't go into a restaurant or grocery stores like many people around America already face because of not taking certain products. But it just gives you a little tiny reminder that, hey, if you're being outcasted, doesn't mean you're automatically right, but typically it could mean that you're following in the way that you should to imitate Jesus in these times. So okay. whatever that's worth. So I like your fortune cookie analogy because I do that a lot too. And, and I don't know if some people are going to be angered by this or upset, but I have at times, like I'll do things like just quote, randomly open the Bible to see if guy wants to tell me something, if I'm wrestling with something and dozens of times this particular thing that my eye is attracted to is so unbelievably relevant. And the answer to my particular situation, it like freaks me out. <laughs> so yeah. anyway, so I, I know what you mean. And, and it happened recently yet too, that I, I put on the, the Christian, you know, the, the series, I think it was channel 63 or something. And what the guy was saying was exactly, you know, what I, you know, needed to help work through the particular issue at the time. So I know exactly what you mean. So just to understand though, you're saying you were struggling with that and and then that was encouraging to you because it was saying, no, David, if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, you know, wouldn't you expect to be cast out and then have to, you know, work in the periphery and, and so forth? Is, is that what you're saying? Right. Yeah. And that, again, that doesn't mean that if you're cast out, therefore you are right. right. Let me be clear about that. Mm -hmm. Because that's kind of like the Barbara Streisand effect. Don't don't right. look at my house, and everybody looks at the house. So that doesn't mean automatically that it means you're doing the right thing or whatever. But it it does seem to be the mm. place where where uh, if you really want to follow Jesus, you're going to mm. end up looking there more than you're going to be in a place of separation. You know, right? And, and also, uh, I've noticed too that they started out, you know, this this classic pattern where people who were being removed is they were saying, you know, provocative things and whatnot, you know, and not that I agreed with the decision, but you know, they, in the beginning, and I won't see names or anything, but the people they were getting left, like they didn't have a lot of allies and, and sympathizers, but I mean, the more and more they keep doing it, it's like clearly, you know, like the stuff you just described, if they had deleted your channel and that was the first thing they did, everybody would have said, Whoa, what are you doing? That's kind of overreach, but they've sort of desensitized people to this process so that, you know, each time they just, you know, turn the screws a little more and somebody who said something even less innocuous is than the next person to get booted. Right. You know, it's kind of a gradual thing. So had you already had those other platforms going and then now you're just putting more of your time into them or did you have to start from scratch? Like you mentioned Rumble, for example. No, yeah, I had, I had BitChute and Rumble going and we started, we started live streaming on Rumble. And just recently, I've just stopped doing the live streaming for a while just to focus in on 
the audio component of the show, kind of retooling and repackaging the way I want to do the the, the audio mm -hmm. component. Because one of the things that I'm dealing with is trying to say, you know, I, my show has always been about, I go into traditional talk radio markets and stations, as well as this podcast audience that we have, which is a good little global audience of, we got a lot of Australians that listen to the show and to give us insights about what's going on on a local's perspective about the craziness over there with the COVID politics. But all of that stuff, my whole program fo focus has always been trying to get people to be positive. Let's stay positive. Let's stay away from the negative group think. Let's stay away from the negative news cycle. But yet I'm dwelling on it 24-7. So it's kind of a hypocritical brand in that mm -hmm. regard. And I, I mean, you can make sense of it in some way by saying, um, well, you got to look at the news so you can inform yourself as to what's going on. And that's true to an extent, but the the level of dwelling on the news that you have to do to do news commentary and do it in a way that's positive and not just feeding the flames of right, problems. Because right. mm -hmm. I would find myself that if I'm not careful, I'm just calling Biden an idiot and stuff, which that doesn't help anything. I mean, it really doesn't. I mean, it might give people a, a feeling of like, well, hey, I feel powerless. And this guy who is a symbol of all these tyrannical, you know, bureaucratic uniparty politics of America that I have no power. And this guy on the radio is saying what I wish I could say that makes me feel better, but that doesn't really solve the problem. So trying to get out of that, you know, like Nietzsche said, when you stare into the abyss, the, the abyss stares back at you and trying to stay away from so much of that negativity, but to do it, to, 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 to gobble up all the news on a regular basis and try to create a try to transmute all that fear and anxiety that those news stories are written to create and try to transmute it into positivity is a difficult thing. And I'm not sure if I'm going to totally abandon it in the future, but I'm trying to go back to some aspects of my show uh, that I think are more truly positive, like mm. hearing from people who are struggling from uh, being incarcerated for unjust sentences for nonviolent actions or or they got out of prison and they're trying to rebuild their life. I like hearing those human stories, and I think those stories really resonate with my audience whenever I bring them on, and we've done a lot over the years. It's been three years since we've been on radio, and we've had folks call in from prison with life sentences for pot and all kinds of stuff since the beginning, and many of the people who called in asking for clemency on my show have now received clemency from Trump or the first step back that he passed. So I felt very proud of that stuff and the community that I was able to develop in the criminal justice reform movement. So I want to do more with that. I want to do more with nutrition, uh, nutrition science and, and empowering people about the truth, about, um, you know, things that they should avoid eating to avoid uh, metabolic dysfunction. And uh, also getting into, well, we do a lot. You know, my co-host on Thursdays is Dr. Yu, our physicist friend. Mm -hmm. And you had that funny story about me doing that uh, talk in Orlando with you guys. And Dr. Yu brought out this... Uh, technology device and you thought this what is this a bomb or something what's going on right and uh but yeah doing more with physics and stuff doing more things that actually like we can't affect politics really i'm starting to learn that we just got to you know really try to find the things that we can affect you can change your diet you can learn more about physics and then tell your kid and then maybe he becomes the new nuclear scientist we've been looking for you can do stuff like that that builds stuff that creates stuff and then also tell the story of victims 
from the justice system because when you see them persevering, it gives a kind of power and triumph that is way more positive than Biden's poll numbers going down, you know? Right, right. Yeah, I totally understand everything you're saying. I struggle with that myself, like to, you know, know, hey, you know, do we, should I go ahead and parse the latest Biden talk? Because I ask myself too, like when I'm listening in my podcast, you know, when I listen to other people's shows, you know, that's always fun to hear someone just going through and exerting something and zinging them. But then you're you're right. Like, is that really doing much except, you know, sort of giving people high fives and on our, you know, on our side and look at how stupid they are over there. And, and, you know, is it edifying? I suppose with this, as with everything, you know, you could look at Christ and his example that he wasn't afraid if, you know, somebody came and asked him something about a, a current event, he certainly would say something wise about it. But, you know, they also, he would, he would teach things that were more eternal too. So it probably is sort of, sort of a blend of the two, I guess. Yeah, and in and, and, and stewing in the news and all the political drama and all that stuff, it teaches you defensiveness. It teaches you to be callous because you're being hit with all these rhetorical impositions. You must do this. You are bad. You are this. You are that. This is a liar. This And you're like, wait a second, that guy didn't lie. And this person, that guy didn't lie, but he's not a good guy like those guys think he is. And it gets all this complicated stuff. And you start subconsciously creating defenses in your own mind and heart that that doesn't that gets in the way of your ability to feel. Mm. And I know feelings sound so silly to people because we're supposed to be so cynical and cool and above it all. But, you know, that's so important. Not, not to give way to every emotion, but just know how to deal with natural, healthy emotions and not become this callous little, you know, just hardened heart because you feel like you're in constant fight or flight mode because you're trying to fight for the truth and intellectually be a vanguard and somehow become entertaining in the meantime. But what does it really matter if, you know, the world has always been ruled by tyrants? The world has always had crowds adore uh, uh, a hero and then turn them into a tyrant and devour them the next minute. That's what they've always done. Is that really our purpose to get in there and scrutinize that all day long? Can we look at it and then move on maybe, you know, and focus on things that actually bring uh, redemption and healing to the world in a real mm -hmm. way, not just talking about what's wrong with the world so much. Yeah. It's uh, you don't need to worry about, you know, it's saying, hey, people, you know, they're they're getting callous and losing their ability to feel because it's, I've been seeing that myself. And it occurred to me that the villain in fiction is often depicted as a brain, like as, as just a brain, you know, so Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, there was Krang. I, I recently just looked this up, folks. That's why. <laughs> it's, it's not that I watched Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles yesterday. Oh, I remember yeah, those as a kid. Right, that, so it was the brain the thing. And then, in, you know, uh, A Wrinkle in Time, you know, near the end there, that's like what, the thing is that kind of is running that, you know, dystopian world is like a and big isn't brain. Super Metroid from Super Nintendo, isn't that a big brain? Oh, yeah, at the I end? forgot. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So I think, you know, that's showing that, you know, yes, rationality and thought and stuff is important, but if that's all it were devoid of, you know, human emotion and sympathy and whatnot, that that, that would actually be horrifying. Right. So I mean, everything we see in politics is a manifestation of defensiveness instead of openness to, to feel and be in the other's shoes, you know? Mm. I mean, the folks who want mask mandates for two-year-olds and, uh, and um, you know, forced, you know, vaccination to get into everyday life, 
and all of this heavy-handed stuff, you know, re- you know, forced, uh, you know, social justice, apologetics, and so forth, all these different things, trying to force the world to be the right way, it's still, you can talk about, well, they have a religion or they like feeling better than everybody, but still it is ultimately rooted in a desire to care for those who they love. They've, mm-hmm. they've bought into a narrative that two-year-olds truly can be really harmed by this disease, so they need to put two-year-olds on a mask, you know? And, you know, and, you know they buy into narratives that, you know, um, America is a uniquely wicked place because of our injustices in the past, and therefore it must be torn down and remade into the image of some kind of um, postmodern socialist globalist outpost or something. It's like, you know, they, they really... They don't really intellectually think through these things. It's just like Jesus said, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. In the passion mm-hmm. of the crowd, and we are operating under crowd passions, whether we're hanging out physically in a crowd or just sitting at home watching TV and the internet. In the passion of a crowd, you become numb to um, your conscience, and your conscience, for whatever's left of it, can be uh, twisted with true love in mind into a direction of tyranny, you know? Mm-hmm. And so that's, it's always important to remember that those who are fighting against mandates and for mandates are actually the same. They're trying to care for their loved ones, you know? Those who are fighting for this drug is the only thing you can take to be protected from COVID and those who say, no, alternative generics actually work too. They're fighting for the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, that's one of the things Rene Girard says, the more we fight, the more we look alike. You know, we look exactly alike from the big picture, right. even though some may be buying into more lies than the other. But at the end of the day, in that perspective, what they feel to be true is that they're trying to do whatever they can to save their loved ones. And there's something no more, there's nothing more noble than that on one level. But the problem of that is that it gets twisted and transmuted like C.S. Lewis said, when you have a moral busybody, right, who believes that they're torturing for your own good, that's mm-hmm. when you get into trouble and the misery continues, you know. Right. So you mentioned Gerard's, and as we had talked about before, David, that might be a good lens through which to analyze the current situation. So folks, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 219 to get links, and I'll link to the previous time I had David on the show where we flushed this out even more. But just real briefly, can you remind people who don't, or tell people who don't know David who Gerard is and what his framework was, and then we can maybe start applying that. Yeah, he was a uh, Rene Gerard passed away in 2015. He was a uh, French anthropologist who uh, went kind of an American as well because he went over and, and taught at different universities like uh, John Hopkins University and later Stanford University, and he. Uh, developed a a novel theory through the study of the works of Western literature that he was studying at the time. He was trained as a historian, but he got tired of doing what was in vogue at the time uh, when he was in academia, where it was all about parsing apart the little subjective nuances of the author and trying to create some kind of uh, social construction of the text. But rather, he wanted to see how all the different texts were connected by similar patterns of human behavior that were present in all these different novels and plays like Shakespeare's work? What was it that made the great works of literature so penetrating and powerful that they stood the test of time and shaped our imaginations and institutions? And he found that there was a similar triangular pattern in all of them about conflict, that human beings fight over the same things 
that they desire. They don't fight because of differences. They fight because of similarities. Mm -hmm. They have conflict with one another uh, because of their desires for the same objects. And that because objects are not infinite, because there's scarcity to objects. And objects don't mean just physical objects, but also like the object of desire being a social status mm -hmm. or, you know, certain things like that, that those objects of desire uh, end up becoming stumbling blocks for us because we desire ultimately to be one with our neighbor. We desire, he, he found that, that basically desire was actually a metaphysical desire that we wanted to be our neighbor because we felt we feel fundamentally that there's some kind of existential lack to our being in and of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that's, and Gerard would say that's because we're not, we're separated from God in some sense, right? That God is infinite being, but that we look around and see people around us and we see a little piece of that infinite transcendence of being and we covet their being. We want to be them. And that's why, you know, the guy that killed um, John Lennon said, I wanted to be him, you know? I wanted to be him, you know, and this idea that uh, people are, are they're coveting somebody else's perceived status or, or place in life as something that has something that they lack fundamentally to be happy and content with themselves as a person. And it's, you can t call it keeping up with the Joneses. You can call it the grass is greener on the other side, but it's that always that looking at the other and seeing what to want. That's what Gerard called mimetic desire. We mimic the desires, not just in a monkey see, monkey do, rote fashion way, but we also mimic what we perceive them wanting to acquire. And, and so we, uh, we look to acquire those things too. And uh, the problem is, is that, of course, the more we imitate somebody else, the more they will imitate us back. And that can be fine so long as the imitation has some, has some differences, has some space between it. and um, and is based on positivity and love. But when it becomes negative and resentful and envious, then it becomes a, a reciprocal imitation of bad blood and ugliness. And that doesn't lead anywhere good, you know, because that ends up creating uh, broken relationships, separation, self-destructive uh, self behaviors, and ultimately, that's what, uh, you know, societies had to deal with is that human beings are different from animals because animals have a dominant submission mechanism. When an alpha wolf defeats the other wolf for the leadership of the pack, the other wolf submits their neck for them to take the final strike, and they typically don't. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe on accident they would if they were in a fight, but they don't take it once it's submitted because they, they don't have the same level of mimetic desire that we do. They, they operate on a more dominant submission kind of mechanism for resolving tension or problems. But we go further. So if, if I insult you, then you insult me, then I come back and slap you, and then you punch me, and then I come back and uh, uh, attack your family, and then you come back and attack my village, and then whoever's left from that village attack goes off and tries to... Uh, to, uh, you know, go after your people, and there you've got a genocide and generations of conflict down the way. That's, that's the nature of human history. And Gerard said, well, if we're so prone to out-of-control reciprocal violence, how in the world are we still here as a species in the first place? Mm -hmm. That make any sense. Because if we just, as long as we're positive, we're, hey, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, hey, I hate you, you're, uh, it goes nuts and everything's falling apart. How did we survive as a species? If we're going to tend to drift into negativity, 
And Gerard looked at the human history and he said, hey, I think I, think I see a pattern here too in mythology and uh, texts of history. It seems like, and he looked at ancient religions and he's like, wait a second, they have this pattern that they all go to sacrifice where they sacrifice one for the greater good. And he looked further in history and he says, well, look, you look at more primitive rituals before you get more structured religions and you still see a similar kind of sacrificial pattern. And then you kind of dig in deeper into that and you see, okay, um, well, we have examples of ritual cannibalism um, where they all devour a shared meal together. And he looked at mythology and he's like, okay, we keep seeing these gods that have these salvific powers. They save the community. But you read their stories and it kind of sounds like they've got different features that make them stand out a little bit more. Some of them have handicaps. Some of them have a limp. Some of them have, you know, Medusa is grotesquely ugly. Uh, there's, or maybe there's a giant or there's a cyclops. There's something that's like garishly different about them. And it doesn't have to be a deformity. It could be a uh, an exceptional quality to the fairest maiden of them all or something. But there's always something that kind of makes them stand out from the crowd. And he's like, well, why is it that these gods, they go on journeys where they fight the dragon and then they die and they resurrect and therefore the whole community is resolved in its problems? And he started to say, maybe they're, maybe they're misremembering or maybe they're collectively remembering an event that was actually a real sacrifice in the heat of the moment, that when a community is caught up in fighting over the same objects, and especially during the plague or famine, when scarce resources are, are really more tight, uh, when they're caught up in that state, they're going to be more likely to, in the time of, of mimetic aggression, to stumble into a common target of, of wrath, to sacrifice, to scapegoat, um, to say, hey, uh, I've got problems with you. You've got problems with me, but I think it's that guy over there. That's the witch that put a spell on us. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's why we have a famine or maybe that's a person's got an evil spirit, or maybe that person didn't respect our ancestors by adhering to our, to their prohibitions and rights that we have been told to do. So I think that person who's a little different in some way, I think that, you know, they don't, they don't think, Oh, he's different. They just feel that guy looks different. He mm-hmm. feels acts different. That woman's different. That's the problem. Get after that one and banish them from the camp or scapegoat them or devour them. And when you devour them, you become one again. You get the transcendence back because you were imitating each other to blame each other and you're pointing fingers at each other. That's a war of all against all. But if you unite all those finger pointings towards a a prevailing problem, Mm -hmm. then everybody kind of can coalesce around that and say, yeah, that guy's the problem. And in that passionate moment, you spontaneously murder that person you truly believe they were guilty of the problem. And if you think this is a stretch, I mean, we see this all over the place in today. Well, not all over the place in the same, the same direct way, but like it is direct in some places, like in Papua New Guinea, we've had on a guest multiple times on the show, Monica Paulus, who in modern times today, you know, she had to flee Papua New Guinea because whenever somebody is sick in the town or in the village, they go around looking for witches to blame. And mm-hmm. they accused her of being a witch. And they wanted to take her property and burn her alive. And they burn other women alive and sometimes men over there. And when they believe that you're, when they start accusing you, you are a witch. Everybody starts believing it. And it kind of snowballs, just like Gerard says in his theory, looking at history. In a community like Papua New Guinea, where um, they're 
they don't have as long here. They don't have as long of a history of Western and Christian ideas saturating their cultural memory. Then something like old school scapegoating might look a little bit more directly the way it used to look in the old days, you know, all over the world, mm -hmm. because we see that pattern all over the world in the Western cultures, Western tribes, China, you know, ancient Mesopotamia, Israel, all of them had to struggle with this desire to sacrifice for the greater good. So Gerard said it first starts as a spontaneous kind of lynching event that feels so transcendent and satisfying that they kind of fall back into that bad habit they've discovered whenever times get tough or stressful again. And over time, they start to tell a story about it, which is where we get myth. Mm -hmm. And that myth encodes a kind of justification of the community's sacrifice uh, from the perspective of the community rather than the this perspective of what the victim who was sacrificed thought. That's a lot there. Uh, no, sorry. I know it's I a just, lot. Let me um, parse some of what you just said and repeat it back to you to make sure I, I'm catching. Is, so is this correct that I think everybody understood, like just even think through what, like what a scapegoat is and, and so forth and psychologically, you know, what does that do for the community? So I think everybody gets that element and that's pretty standard. But then the, the part, that I, you know, I hadn't really heard explained before until, you know, you originally were on the show and, and told me about Gerard's framework is you're saying that the community, it couldn't just go down in history as, oh yeah, there was that time when, you know, the unemployment was high and we blamed the Japanese immigrants and we lynched a few of them. Yeah. And, you know, and, but it would have felt good to just get that out of our system and to hang some guys because, you know, we didn't have work. You couldn't say that necessarily. And so there was some sense in which they would elevate the victims of the lynching yeah. and attribute So like they transformed the story so that it was no longer just a simple tale of, yeah, we looked around and just grabbed some completely innocent person because they were different and did something horrible to them. And that made us feel good. Cause that, you know, no one wants to tell that story. That doesn't sound very flattering to anybody. And so they tell yeah. a different story. Yeah. They tell a different story because when they kill the person or purge them, they start to feel like the problem that was really drawing them to that bad activity has been resolved. Mm-hmm. So how do you explain the psychic process? I mean, you know, we've never been around what that's like to be in a community. You wake up in your hut and someone's grabbing somebody and the whole community's up in arms and they're beating them and parading them through the streets. And they're, you know what I mean? Like they're going to sacrifice them. That, can you imagine? I can't even imagine what that visceral, the heart racing of that. What in the world? You know, and, and, and imagine doing that in the midst of famine or plague or things where things are more stressful already. And everybody's participating and everybody believes this person deserves the blame of what has caused everybody to be at each other's throats. Mm -hmm. And so um, when you devour that person or defeat them, it creates such a catharsis, such a relief between the problems of you. It's like, I mean, we know this all the time. You're arguing with somebody and then you see the news. I mean, here's an example. You know, you're arguing with somebody, you see 9-11s on TV. Whoa! That's such a more transcendent event. You forget that you're fussing about work problems. You're like, oh my goodness, we've been attacked. Something transcendent has happened, mm -hmm. right? That has resolved instantly the problems between me and you. Or um, you're, you're fussing with your friend or something, and all of a sudden you hear, oh, Biden's starting a new war. You're like, oh my goodness, are you kidding me? Now you've turned yourself united against, look mm -hmm. at this third mm -hmm. party who's doing all this stuff. So that psychic feeling happening in those primitive times of human development 
it be, you know, you start to say, okay, well, maybe that person wasn't just a, a mischief maker, but also they were teaching us. They were a God or an ancestor that had come into life again, or, or a spirit or someone that's not quite like us because they were already different. You know, they had something different about them already. Um, and, uh, and they, and so they were able to, you know, kind of solve the passions of the crowd by their being killed. Therefore, you kind of remember the event as, well, maybe they were teaching us that when times are tough, you turn to sacrifice in honor of them. We recreate the same thing we did with them, and that is a teaching guide to guide us um, to when times are tough, we have to present sacrifices to the gods, and the gods could be the guy that we first did this. And this is something that I'm not saying it happens logically in one generation. It's like it's a slow process of humans stumbling into this kind of pattern of behavior that acted as kind of like a, you know, like a safety valve for runaway mimetic violence, mm-hmm. right? That animals don't do sacrifices like this. I mean, they they do like you know you know that there's a weak baby that can't um, suckle well or something, sometimes the animal will let the, the baby die. So that's a kind of sacrifice, but they don't, they don't do this kind of like intentional, like uh, binding together the whole unit to eliminate somebody as if that was the thing that caused the turmoil amidst the unit. You know, that's kind of a thing that humans did. And it seems to have acted as a temporary survival mechanism for thousands of years that eventually over time developed into very elaborate rituals of religion. Mm-hmm. And so what are taboos? Taboos are doing things that violate a sense of difference between people. That's why taboos are earliest are around things like incest and stealing and things like that, because you're violating people's sense of self, right? And if you lose your sense of self, you're more likely to get caught up in a mimetic frenzy. You see, Gerard basically says that human beings are not, like ourselves are not constructed of our own. They're the self we have is an in relationship with the other, which is kind of in keeping with like Trinitarian understanding that the Father, Son, Holy Spirit are three persons distinct, but one God, and that the Holy Spirit is unique and that it's both a person and a relationship. And mm-hmm. so this idea of personhood and relationship kind of being intermingled together gives us an insight into who we are since we are made in the image of this God that our relationships and our sense of self is socially constructed in relationship to one another. And so you can imagine how um, that can kind of create a situation in which um, you share a, a shared sense of self, that we are united as one when somebody violates certain taboos that in the past led to bad blood, that we have a kind of ritual sacrifice and purging effect for that Mm -hmm. behavior. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, if you steal all the time, that's a problem. You know, if you're having incest with your family members, you're not respecting the differences of families and the need to, you know, you know, not not do these things because it's going to create jealousy. That's why when ancient societies, when they would have like identical twins born, sometimes they would see that as a harbinger of of, of bad blood is coming, and they would hmm. kill the twins because it was like a sign that too much undifferentiation had arrived and. Uh, and that was a sign that things were going to be really calamitous. And they would, and, and it's kind of funny because they would socially, they would psychically kind of connect the idea of like plagues and famines to 
the social violence that are correlated to that, you know? Right. So those are almost interchangeable. Hmm. Hey folks, just a quick note. If you like what you're hearing and you want to hear more, then go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. I thank you in advance. Why don't we pivot now and take that framework and try to apply it maybe to the world today. So one quick offshoot of that is, this is why I think, you know, regardless of the morality of it, when like the U.S. government says, oh, there's some dictator overseas that we don't like. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to impose heavy trade sanctions and maybe even start doing airstrikes. And that's the way we're going to support the resistance. And one obvious, you know, is seeing the framework he's presented is to say, no, that's going to strengthen the dictator because the people in his own country who are against him are going to lose all the support of the public if they're getting bombed by some foreign country. Like everyone rallies around the flag, like you were saying with, you know, like a 9-11, people who had been squabbling the day before can all of a sudden unify. And even people who hated George Bush's guts, you know, would stand with the president, you know, in this moment of national crisis. So if you wanted to, you know, directly attacking some dictator's government or regime is not actually a great way necessarily to help the dissidents in his country who are trying to oust them. Anyways, do you want to respond to that? Uh, what, what about it particularly? Just to <laughs> clarify my thoughts here. Um, so, oh, I'm just saying, because you had, you had mentioned how, you know, getting that common enemy or that common threat is the way that unifies people and they put aside their differences. And so I'm saying, I think people can understand that and realize that like in our country, like when was the one time that the media liked Donald Trump is if he's launching cruise missiles somewhere. That's the one time when he's acting presidential and what, whatnot. It's a sacrifice. It's right. a sacrificial right of, uh, you, you just, you became presidential today because you were willing to, you know, kill life right. and make a statement. That's right. a sacrificial thing. So that reveals that the state is in its origins uh, a vestige of, of uh, sacrificial religion. Right, right. And so I'm saying at the same time too. So if the goal is like, oh, there's some dictator overseas that, you know, the U.S. government doesn't like and they're telling the American public this is a bad guy. Right. There's some resistance fighters or, or there's, you know, the middle-class people who don't like this guy and they wish, you know, they had more, a more democratic liberal leader. So you know how we're going to help them. We're going to impose heavy trade sanctions and start doing airstrikes on them. And I'm saying, no, that actually could backfire because in that guy's country now, the public's going to rally around him because they're getting attacked by an external threat, namely the United States government. And so actually the people who didn't like him, they might lose their support and say, oh, we can't criticize them now because we're getting bombed by the U.S. Right. Yeah, that's, that's definitely a great Girardian style application of, what's, of, of how foreign policy works. And, I, and see that, you know, you cannot read mimetic theory at the scapegoating level in a static direction with Girard because mm -hmm. there's something that happens with Girard's insights uh, that point back to the Bible and its uniquely revelatory experience in changing history. And uh, you got to get into the story of Jesus to understand. So, so the reason, so you look at the headlines today, you say something's not going on right because the old magic trick of we got to go get a boogeyman overseas to unite our country isn't working. Mm -hmm. And that's why the violence is splitting everybody up apart here domestically. Let's just take it at an American perspective for a second. You know, I mean, it's no, it's no wonder to me as a Girard fan that the failure of the war on terror to create a credible success and a credible vanquishing of credible boogeymen with catharsis that that's supposed to provide didn't result in that, but rather has created this environment in which Americans are at each other's throats like never before domestically. 
we don't, we couldn't even care less about terrorists abroad right now. Right, right. We think everybody else is a terrorist in our own communities. If you look a certain way, you know, and everything's a problem. Everything's a problem right now. It's all undifferentiated mimetic aggression and rivalry and conflict and envy. Math is a problem. Showing work on math is a problem. Right. Shakespeare right. is a problem. Newton is a problem. You know, mm -hmm. showing up on time is white supremacy or whatever. Uh, yeah. Everything is a place of conflict now. This is exactly what happens when a society is going into a mm -hmm. war of all against all because the scapegoat mechanism does not provide the catharsis and unification that it used to. Right, right. So I think- It's kind I mean, of bad news in some ways. Oh, oh, definitely. So one that jumps out at me is the, is the most obvious, and I'm, you, know, you probably talk about this on your show a lot, is with the, how all of a sudden every new problem is because all oh, those people who refuse to get vaccinated. Like, so they're clearly the scapegoat and, and it's, you know, and, yeah. that, and that was not the narrative originally. You know, yeah. you know, in other words, originally it was, oh, you need the, the vaccine or whatever, and people take that and then, and then when, you know, it wasn't panning out right. So, and, and again, I think like, like you were saying, regardless of one's views about the vaccine and its efficacy and so forth, clearly it's weird to me just to see rhetorically how that's being framed and how, you know, it's even if it got to be that, oh, only 6% of the public still has yet to do that, they would still be responsible for everything else that was going on. And it's like, that's yeah. like, that doesn't that's make sense. That's the scapegoating frenzy. Yeah, I mean, because right. that's what they used to do. If if not everybody participates in the rain dance and the rain doesn't come, we're going to eliminate that person who didn't play the rain dance because the, the rain didn't come. You see what I mean? Mm. It's That's the ritualistic kind of mimetic thinking of the ancient world that everybody has to do certain pro, everybody has to abide by certain taboos and everybody needs to participate to some degree in certain rituals and responsibilities. And when you don't, you're going to violate the sense of shared unity and conformity that maintains everybody's place in the community. Um, and it's going to open up this undifferentiated space where people can go upwards and downwards and social status and people can go at you and go against you and go against brother. And so you need these different differentiations, whether it's property, private property, or uh, just rules that are enforced about, you know, this is the proper conduct and this is how you do things. You need those things to maintain a sense of differentiation because if you want to eliminate all prohibitions, you're going to be left with a state of undifferentiation in which all we're going to do is gobble each other up in a war of all against all, which is where we're headed. We don't have to head that way, but the reason we're heading that way is because something objectively happened in history and it was the arrival of Jesus Christ that disrupted and destroyed the scapegoat mechanism. It revealed it by being part of it, revealing it from within and showing humanity that are engaged to the story of the biblical text because they are brought up in the gospel text influence in their cultures. It undermines slowly the logic and the dependability of the scapegoat mechanism to bind a community together whenever they're stressed out or have bad blood. So Jesus basically gave us a sink or swim kind of moment. We've either got to learn to swim like adults or we're going to fall into the sea of, of undifferentiated chaos. We've either got to learn to grow up and the bumpers are off of our bowling game. We've got to learn to make a strike or we're going to go into the gutter of history. And so it's like a test. And that's why Jesus said, I've come to bring a sword. He wasn't there to come and give us happy, clappy, lovey-dovey, kind little statements like history tries to misremember him as. He came to cut through the lie of the bound up nature of the scapegoat mechanism. And now it, it will not return. So despite what they're trying to do, 
with like trying to make the unvaccinated the uh, villain par excellence in the West, it's not going to work because Jesus broke it. And once you break it, you can't create unanimity because the whole successful nature of the scapegoat mechanism was that everybody agreed that the person who was being banished was a villain. Mm-hmm. They all believed they were justly deserving their status in life. There was no schism. There was no factions. There were no polling ideological factions. It was, I mean, yeah, you had them emerge to some degree, but it was always settled by the sacred of sacrifice of the religion that bound the community together whether you're talking about the Roman Empire, all, you have these different levels, and, and it became animal sacrifice too. But that, that idea that, that divine violence is how, we medi- is how we deal with justice, it's how we deal with conflicts, uh, and, that, and that people who go against what everybody else is doing deserve to be divinely punished or blamed for the problems of the community, even if it's completely irrational. That is something that Jesus has exposed to us in history and it didn't happen overnight. It takes a long time for humans to generationally process what just happened. And we're still trying to get our heads around it because we don't know what really happened on the cross. We get little glimpses of it. I think that's why the church, by the way, doesn't have a position as an official doctrine as to what the atonement is. They leave it open for different theories because there's so many vantage points to explain what happened there that have some bits of the truth, but they don't put a dogma to that atonement theory. Like if you look at the the Roman Catholic Church and stuff, because it's meant to be this, I mean, it's just this event that changed history that we fully haven't even got our heads around yet. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean we can't participate in the reality of what that means for our lives, even though we don't fully get it. Okay, let me, again, a lot of deep stuff there. Let me try to take some of that and crystallize it or distill it, let's say, and then tell me if this is right, what you're saying. So, you know, you got that scapegoat mechanism and that, you know, worked in the sense that, yep, it would temporarily wash away the sins of the community and psychologically at least, and they could go about their business and, you know, calm tensions or whatever, because they would just focus their ire conflicts with each other on this person that was different, the outcast, and then, you know, blame everything on that person and then get rid of them. And then Jesus comes along and they do the same thing to him. But there, because, you know, he was showing, I guess, the ultimate futility of it, that hey, look at the logical endpoint of this scapegoat mentality is when God sends his own son down to go around healing people and teaching them unbelievably wise things and how to live and be happy and fulfilled. They torture him and, and murder him brutally. So there's something wrong with that process. And so he you know, ultimately demonstrated how wrong it was and that that's not the path to peace. And so you're saying because of the futility had been demonstrated, they realized we can't use that technique anymore. They can still go back to it and whatever, but it's, it's been demonstrated to not be effective. And so it's almost like somebody who every time things get overwhelmed, they go and they, they got to just drink and that's how they handle it. And you know that, yeah, that might provide temporary relief, but in the long run, you're not solving your problems by just going to the bottle. And so someone might, you know, take that away from them or something, or just really, you know, have a heart to heart and say, you got to stop doing that as your way of coping. And then the person's got to choose, what am I going to do? Is, is that a decent analogy? Yeah, I think that's really good. And um, it's like being able to see what the other person's perspective is, you mm-hmm. know, history. So it's not just about the social thing that Jesus is healing there. There's also the personal thing. But a lot of mm-hmm. Christians in America are so individualistic. We get in the me and Jesus thing and we miss the social thing that happened there. You know what I mean? The political implications of the gospel. When Paul, when, uh, 
when Peter makes his first sermon, he's talking about all the kings of the earth were arrayed against Jesus on the cross. I didn't see all the kings of the earth there, did you? I saw, you know, Herod and Pilate had a role in his execution, but did you see uh, the Egyptian God, I mean, the kings and all these people arrayed? No, um, but they were there because all the false gods of the world and all the kings were all scapegoat God kings. They're kind of like mixtures of this, and they were all arrayed against mm-hmm. stopping the revelation of what was been had been done up to that point. All those kings of the earth, which bind their power based on the right to might makes right, were arrayed against the events that happened on the Gospels mm-hmm. all throughout history. That that Those systems that you are trying to, with economics and political analysis, make sense of, those systems were arrayed against what Jesus did on the cross for a reason, you know? Um, and we are still arrayed against them on the cross in some sense because we can't bear to actually try to turn the other cheek, both in our personal lives and socially, and really be like Christ. We are so afraid that we're going to get hurt that we always make um, we always we always make a- exception clauses and so forth and so on, so that we don't open up ourselves to the vulnerability of being hand stretched out, naked on a cross, brutalized by everybody. Your friends have abandoned you. Nobody wants that. Nobody really wants that. Nobody wants to be abandoned by all their friends. Nobody wants to be tortured. Nobody wants to be accused of the worst things. Nobody wants to be totally separated from their father. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody wants that. That's hell. That's hell on earth. And so we, we put up defenses mimetically to protect us by saying, I'll give a little bit to you, but if you strike me too much, I'm going to get back at you harder. And so because we do that, we create hell on earth for us anyways. You see, it's like we're trying to stop the hell of going through what Jesus felt on the cross, but all we do is create generations of hell on earth for everybody. You know, because, and so what Jesus is doing there, it's like a, the, the gospel texts are like a piece of technology. You got to understand, you know, this frame of technology. It's like putting on glasses so you can see something for the first time. And when you see the world in a certain way, it opens up this opportunity for techno- for humans to move away from the old habits of violence to solve problems and to open up a creative capacity in humans that can allow us to solve problems, what you would say voluntarily through what you call market forces. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? It opens up the capacity. It doesn't mean we didn't have a market before the cross. It means it opens up the capacity for that to accelerate and for humanity to start moving its focus and emphasis of solving problems away from divine violence and divine justice and towards like, Hey, we've burned, so so the church goes on to burn witches and stuff for hundreds of years after this happens, or thousands of years. But at some point, they're like, hey, wait a second, maybe, maybe this idea of burning Sally isn't solving the problems. Maybe let's be a little creative and let's look at what that thing is that's growing on that guy's nose there, the corpse, because there's a black plague. Well, let's go, can I get something to make that bigger? Oh, hey, Bob, you've got a glass. Okay, let's try to sharpen this thing and see if we can see this glass and see what's on that nose a little fast. Ooh, that looks like the same thing we saw in the Petri day. And so now you're creating mimetic positivity, people coordinating their talents and skills and differences together in a harmonious way that we call scientific discovery. And when you have that, you're able to solve problems like famines and plagues and tensions without resorting to violence. And so, of course, you can apply this to what's happening in this latest pandemic Mm -hmm. and how this is not being followed, but in some ways it is. 
But uh, um, yeah, those who want to provide generic solutions that cost pennies on the dollar for people, they're being cast outside the camp by the high priests who demand force and sacrifice that you must get what the kings have decreed is scientifically valid for your health for this disease, or else we will mm-hmm. banish you to the hinterlands mm-hmm. as a bad person spreading the disease versus the people who are the doctors on the front lines using real-world treatments that don't have any profit margins, but they actually get results, and they're getting nothing but hell and shame and getting their licenses revoked. That's the battle between Christ and, and, the, and the gods of the, of the crowd that we're still wrestling with. Mm-hmm. But Christ is winning because when he broke our blindness— when he opened up our eyes to see from the vantage point of the victim, up until this point, all mythology had been told from the crowd's perspective, from the winners of history. But on the cross, he said, let's shift the view. Let's do the same thing you guys have always been doing, thinking that you knew who God was and what God wants of you. But let's rewind the tape and let God play the role of the victim. Let's let God show people what you all did all over the world, independently of one another, to construct who God was through your own religions. So God showed up in history and said, okay, guys, you've had playtime. And I understand it kind of helps solve your problems with a noble lie, so to speak. But I'm going to reveal that lie because it's time for you to grow up. It's time for you to start weaning off of this bad way of dealing with people which starts with the lying accusation that this person is the cause of our problems and then is completed with a sacrifice of murder or purging them out of the camp. And then that catharsis makes us remember that victim as, ooh, they were both God and devil. That's why all those gods in mythology have an ambivalent character, a capricious character. Sometimes they're playing tricks on people. Other times they're saving the community from catastrophe. Sometimes they're raping someone. Other times, they're providing blessing on your voyage across a stormy sea. They're kind of this way, that way, this way, that way. That's the nature of how how those gods seem as you remember what that transcendent feeling is like. The transcendence of, of, of solving bad blood through the murder of someone who also, you remember them as also causing trouble for you. And so you learn, okay, maybe we shouldn't do those troubling things, so let's create rituals that they were demonstrating for us We're going to ritually remember not to do stealing, not to do incest, not to do bestiality, because those were the original things that we used to accuse the person that we victimized in the beginning. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so, but we we don't want to take responsibility for our violence. We want to project it into the sky and say the gods taught us this. Or our because if you ever ask like you know indigenous cultures and stuff, where'd you get your practice of sacrifice? They'll say, well, our ancestors taught us, and their ancestors got it from the gods eventually. Mm -hmm. See. Right, right. So, so, so the real God of history shows up and says, okay, that was playtime. Let's show you what you've been doing. But he doesn't do it the way like we do it because we do it in all our religions. We try to say like, I will never participate in violence. I will never participate. No, what the Bible anthropology, the anthology of the biblical text gives us a perfect account of humans struggling to understand who God is and what humans are supposed to do with one another and they're struggling and getting it wrong, and they're moving away from human sacrifice. They're moving towards animal sacrifice, and ultimately, Jesus comes in and reveals how the scapegoating mechanism works and how it was a temporary fix to something that would not really succeed in the long run to move humanity to where it wanted to be. But 
the, the, the apocalyptic nature of Jesus's revelation is that once the, the, the magic trick of sacrifice is exposed throughout time, eventually it will create the state of global undifferentiated chaos that we're about to experience because of globalism spreading Christianity's concern for victims worldwide. Does that make sense? So we don't want to repent, but we're aware, we're haunted by the cross, but we don't want to repent of the violence that leads us back to crucifying everybody. We're haunted by victims, but we can't agree on who the victims are. We're haunted by our power oppressive stories, but we can't see it as a universal tendency. So things like critical theory and all that stuff emerge to try to quarantine guilt that we all feel into a certain silo. Well, it's men that have been doing this. They're the cause of all the oppression. No, it's uh, it's America. America's a uniquely slave state. Nobody else did slaves like we did. We're the worst of the world, the bane of human history. We've got to purge America and rebuild it uh, with violence and, 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 you know, or or it's, uh, you know, white people or this group. Before it was, they turned on, oh, it's black people that are causing our problems. That's why we are, we're having economic difficulties in the South or whatever, you know. So there's always this need that when times are tough, or which often are most of history, uh, to turn towards a narrative that tries to quarantine the guilt onto a certain category of person or a specific person. And what Jesus is doing is he's, he's revealing, no, universal human fall means all of us are capable of doing what our ancestors have done before, which is to kill the prophets. Right, right. And that's, I mean, you obviously said a lot there. Unfortunately, as I, as I mentioned before, um, David, I, I do need to wrap this up because I have a hard constraint here in a minute. But just to tie what you just said there with some other, is, is that's I like, I know you're a fan of Jordan Peterson. I like one of his takeaways is to say that, you know, we all need to recognize that in the right circumstances, or I guess say the wrong circumstances, you could have been a guard at Auschwitz. Like, don't think right. that's a categorically, qualitatively different type of evil person. And I would never do something like, you know, saying you need to recognize what you're capable of. And only then actually can you really be a, a force for good in the world. If you're going around exactly. thinking, I could never do that, you're either useless or you might actually be on the wrong side and not even realize it because you've blinded yourself to that possibility. Exactly. Yeah, that, that's a very well said point. And, it, and, he's, and that's in the keeping of, of, of what I believe the gospels are revealing in our culture and worldwide. It, Jesus says, I am the stone that the builders rejected. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, he says. Mm-hmm. And so this idea is that in being rejected, whatever is perceived to be rejected in this world that he's building becomes the cornerstone for the power of the new culture. See what I mean? So that's yeah, why yeah. we can't create unity because when the more they double down on blaming the vaccinated or blaming the unvaccinated or whatever, the more they double down on these, these power narratives of this is the problem. They're trying to make mythology in real time. Mm-hmm. But because Jesus broke the unanimity of sacrifice, there's always a schism. There's always a different perspective that's saying, no, we are just to be able to be the way we want to be. We are just to not get this product. We are just to protect our kids from this. And so that creates continual schisms that will haunt us until we have the courage to start imitating Christ, which means nonviolence, non-vengeance, repentance, and opening up our hearts to be able to see from the perspective of the person that we feel is causing our problems. Well, that's beautiful stuff, David. Like I say, unfortunately, I, I do need to, to get going here. Um, thank you so much for spending time with us today. 
folks. I'll give links to what we've been talking about as well as David's previous appearance. So go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 219. David, thanks for all you do. And um, I really hope you get over this temporary setback. And as you say, this, you've, you're right. It's not a, it doesn't prove that you were doing the right thing, but I know that it's because you've been doing the right thing. And that's why you're facing these temporary setbacks. Well, thank you. I really appreciate your time, Bob. Okay, thanks. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.